This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when Jesse plays music like that, I know what's coming up. He loves great practical jokes, and so do we here on the show. And he's been giving us any number of stories about great practical jokesters of the 20th century in this country. And boy, have we had some doozies in the past. We had daredevils like Lawn Chair Larry, who violated L.A.'s airspace laws while floating on a lawn chair attached to weather balloons. We had a hacker like Captain Crunch who broke into the national phone system using a whistle found in a cereal box so he and his buddies could make free phone calls long distance. And of course, Alan Abel, who convinced the world that we should put pants on barnyard pets. (laughs) That was my favorite. And by the way, this show loves the show Impractical Jokers. My little girl and I can sit down for hours on end and watch those guys on True TV just, well, crack each other up. And Americans are a fun-loving group of people. And that brings us to today's story about hackers and jokesters and hoaxers. And today we bring you the tale of an old-school media hacker named Jim Moran, whose personal brand of trickery is sure to entertain. Here's Jesse. You can't buy publicity like this. Jim Moran was called, at various times, super salesman number one, America's number one prankster, and the last great bunko artist in the profession of publicity. He became famous during the 30s and 40s for devising outrageous stunts on behalf of his clients. He was a publicist and press agent for film studios, manufacturers, retailers, and Washington politicians from the 30s to the 80s. In 1989, Time Magazine ranked him as the supreme master of that most singular marketing device, the publicity stunt. There is no such thing as bad publicity. Born in 1907, Moran was the son of a chimney maker. When he was 12 years old, he was riding a bicycle and was hit by a car. The driver was so relieved to see that Moran was unharmed that he gave him $100, which Moran immediately used to take a train to New Orleans. Instead of going to college, Moran took a variety of jobs, including a tour guide in Washington, an airline executive, and a manager of a studio where congressmen recorded speeches for local radio. His favorite technique was to test the validity of popular sayings. In August of 1938, he traveled to Juneau, Alaska on behalf of General Electric, where he sold ice to an Eskimo. He then returned to Hollywood with 200 pounds of Arctic ice, claiming that it was the purest ice in the world. He sold 10 pounds of it to an actress who used it for facial treatments. In 1939, to promote a real estate development, he literally searched for a needle in a haystack. The search took him 82 and a half hours before he finally found it near the bottom and slightly to the left of center. In 1940, he led a live bull through a New York City china shop. The bull didn't damage anything, however, some of the china was broken when Moran's client nervously backed into a table. And that's just the first three publicity stunts that Jim Moran pulled off in his lifetime career of getting people's attention for a living. That advertisement had no effect on me whatsoever. In June of 1946, he sat on an ostrich egg for 19 days, 4 hours and 32 minutes in order to hatch it. He did all of this while wearing a feather headpiece with a foot-high ostrich plume. Do they bite? No, they kick, but they aren't very bright. You lie down flat, he can't see you. That's the male. He has to guard the eggs. But if you can distract him... How do I distract a male ostrich? The stunt was designed to promote a movie called The Egg and I. The baby ostrich, when hatched, was named Ossip Moran. He donated it to a zoo. 
In November of 1946, Jim Moran tricked the Los Angeles Art Association into displaying an abstract painting of his own creation, described by him as, quote, the worst thing I could think of. Okay, let's just put a happy little mountain, something about like that. And let's paint several little happy trees. He disguised the fake art as work of a previously unknown artist known as Naromji, which is his own name spelled backwards with a J-I added for confusion. The work hung beside paintings by well-known modern artists at the time and was given a price tag of $1,000. $1,000,000. That was a ton of money in 1946. The painting was even described by the Los Angeles Times as, quote, an astonishing conglomeration of paint, chalk, magazine cutouts, and fingernail polish. It consisted of a series of swirls and triangles, and in the spaces in between the lines, the artist had placed small pictures that included a fish, a head, an arm, eyes, and a leg cut out from a lingerie advertisement. But the art association was just a tad embarrassed when, at the end of the month, the publicist-slash-prankster Jim Moran revealed that he was the true author of the painting. The Art Association eventually criticized the hoax, arguing that it could make it harder for young unknown artists to get their work displayed. (laughs) One more of the dozens of pranks that Jim Moran here pulled off over the years was in 1947. During the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia's trip to the United States, Moran showed up at Ciro's restaurant in Hollywood disguised as the prince. He was accompanied by fake guards and servants. During his meal, he tipped the waiters and band members with large gems. On his way out of the restaurant, the goatskin bag holding the gems accidentally broke, scattering the jewels all over the floor. One of his fake servants started to pick them up, but Moran imperiously waved his hand to signal him to stop, because picking up the jewels was beneath the dignity of a prince. He then left the restaurant, and upon his departure, the Hollywood elite dining at the restaurant immediately scrambled to snatch up the jewels, all of which were actually just dime store trinkets of no value. And those are just a few of the many publicity stunts and flat-out hoaxes that Jim Moran pulled off during his long career. Jim Moran died in Inglewood, New Jersey in October of 1999. His obituary, written in the New York Times, read... His life might be described by two symbols, the exclamation point and the dollar sign. He pushed outrageousness to the outer limits to seize the attention of the buying public. He got the attention he desired. Even his colleagues in the publicity business, a species not given to promoting much of anything without being paid, gave him respect. And that is the story of publicist, hoaxer, and prankster, Jim Moran. This is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Jesse, and we want more. That's all I can say. We want more of these. And just as my little girl and I can't get enough of impractical jokers, I don't think Americans can ever get sick of good and decent and sometimes even on the edge practical jokes. By the way, don't try practical jokes on people who can't take it. That's cruel. But for people who can, bring it on, baby. That's what we say. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Impractical jokester, hoaxer, Jim Moran story here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. And we take our stories where we find them and from storytellers who we like. And once we get one thing good from a storyteller, we want more. Generally, a good story isn't an accident. In the past, we brought you author and public policy leader Herb London's tribute to his late father, Yankel, as part of our Final Thought series, where we do eulogies or remembrances of famous and not-so-famous people who've lost a loved one. But there were two more men that Herb London wanted to pay tribute to, two more folks he looked up to, two more people that impacted his young and future life. Let's take a listen to this tribute from Herb London. Simon and Garfunkel once plaintively asked, Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Where indeed? DiMaggio was the Fred Astaire of baseball. He moved with grace and effortless agility. DiMaggio's first seven years in Major League Baseball are among the most productive in the history of the game. DiMaggio didn't strut after a home run or pump his fist in the air after a game-winning hit. He simply went about his business without fanfare, without any of the flamboyant rituals that now accompany modest accomplishments. One might say that Joe is a reluctant hero who understood the virtue of humility. In the interest of full disclosure, I was not a DiMaggio fan. That's largely because Joe's talent was used against my beloved Brooklyn Dodgers in 1941, 47, and 49 World Series. Joe might have grimaced when Al Giamfrito robbed him a home run with two outs, two runners on, and the score 8-5 to five in the sixth game of the 47 series. But the Yankees still won it all. He started baseball's famous streak that's got us all aglow. He's just a man and not a free Jolton Joe DiMaggio. Joe, Joe DiMaggio, we want you and us. He tied the mark at 44, July the 1st, you know. Since then, he's hit a good 12 more, Jolton Joe DiMaggio. Willie Mays is arguably the most exciting center fielder who ever played the game, but even Willie didn't possess Joe's graceful manner. DiMaggio didn't dive for balls or catch them at his shoe tops or lose his hat chasing a fly ball. He simply got to every ball without a stir. Dignity was his middle name. DiMaggio's exploits on the diamond were duplicated by his demeanor out of baseball. When his storybook marriage to Marilyn Monroe came to an end, he didn't write a kiss-and-tell book. He guarded his memories to the end. The tabloids couldn't buy his story for any price. Moreover, when Robert Kennedy visited the Yankee dugout during a 1960s old-timers game, DiMaggio refused to shake his hand. He could not forgive Kennedy for his exploitive treatment of Marilyn and refused to be hypocritical about it. Joe didn't forgive, and he didn't forget. Until shortly before his own death, Joe sent a half dozen roses each week to Marilyn's gravesite in Hollywood. Impeccably tailored, DiMaggio walked through the Yankee dugout in his later years as if beatified. He was a model for the young players, an icon for the older players. It is inconceivable that DiMaggio would wear a baseball cap backward or throw his bat in anger after a week showing at the plate. He was a model of rectitude. He wrote the book on decorum at the stadium. Play hard with determination, but don't show up your opponent. Run out every hit at ball. 
Don't upbraid your teammates in public. Don't show off. Don't demean yourself with degrading public appearances. And always respect the game. Baseball and the rest of sports could benefit from a healthy dose of DiMaggio's dignity. Unfortunately, most players today seem unable to respect an athlete who refused to engage in degrading behavior on and off the field. The true measurement of a legend is its legacy. Now, after Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier as a Dodger, the legend endures. Where have you gone, Jackie Robinson? When the Major League celebrated the 50th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's entry into baseball, breaking the color barrier and integrating the sport, my mind flashed back to 1948, the year I met him. It was Jackie's second year with the Brooklyn Dodgers. He'd already been named Rookie of the Year the previous season. On a day off, Jackie came to my elementary school on Ocean View Avenue in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. I was in the fourth grade and a fanatical Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Seeing Robinson was a dream come true. It wasn't only because Robinson displayed courage in standing up to racial taunts. It was because he was the single most exciting player of his generation. He wasn't as smooth as DiMaggio. He didn't have Ted Williams' batting eye or Stan Musial's graceful swing. But when Robinson was on base, he brought drama to the game. He could unnerve a pitcher more than anyone else I have seen on the diamond. His mere presence could change the complexion of a game. When Robinson entered the school auditorium, my heart beat so quickly I could barely breathe. My fourth grade teacher introduced me as an aspiring Major League Baseballer. My knees shaking, I asked Jackie to sign his baseball card, which was one of my prized possessions. This happened to a lot of other collectors. My cards were eventually discarded by my mother. He did so without hesitation, inquiring what position I liked to play. Shortstop, I blurted out. Well, I used to be a shortstop with the Kansas City Monarchs, he replied. Having read every book on Robinson, I was well aware of his minor league history, including his very successful year in Montreal before Branch Rickey called him up to the majors. For a moment, I felt as if me and Robinson were the only people in the room. Kid, did you ever get to games at Ebbets Field? Jackie inquired. My dad can take me every once in a while, I answered, but he said, here are two tickets for a game against the Pirates. If you want to play in the big leagues, you should become acquainted with the field. I flew home from school that day. I couldn't wait to tell my friends and my parents about my good fortune. From that day in 1948 until Robinson's retirement when he was sold to the hated New York Giants, I imitated Jackie's pigeon-toed gait. I held my bat high in the batter's box that Robinson did, and I followed every statistic that applied to him. In 1949, I used a slide rule for the first time to determine whether he, Ted Williams, or George Kell led the majors in batting since they all ended the season with 342 averages. By the way, Kell won it all, and Jackie led the National League in hitting. When my dad and I used the tickets that Robinson gave us, we arrived at Ebbets Field early, very early, and waited at the player's entrance until Robinson came. When Jackie saw me, he borrowed a stickball bat and a Spaldine from a youngster playing nearby and said, Show me what you've got, kid. His pitch was moderately fast, batting practice speed. I got around on it well and hit the ball about three sewers away. I always regarded this moment as divine intervention. As I ran to retrieve the ball, Jackie said to my dad, your son is quite a hitter. My father glowed. I never made it to the big leads, although I did play college baseball. But Robinson was and remains my hero. In an era of greedy, self-indulgent athletes, 
I like to remind myself that Robinson never earned more than $35,000 a season and didn't complain about his salary. He signed autographs without a fee, and he influenced a life unknowingly. A press agent didn't have to tell him how to treat admirers. Robinson was a towering figure on the diamond, but he was an even more imposing figure off the field. He was a gentleman. He didn't have to pitch to me. He didn't have to tell my dad I was special. He did those things because he was a gracious man who understood his place in history. Jackie Robinson would be remembered for changing the game of baseball, turning his cheek when members of his own team refused to play with him, or opponents intentionally spiked him. All of that has become part of baseball lore. But I remember Robinson because he touched me, a poor kid from Brooklyn who idolized the Dodgers. When Robinson died in 1972, I went to his funeral with thousands of other admirers. My suspicion is that more than a few people in that long line of mourners were touched by Jackie as I had been. In those moments when I daydream about the past, I can see Jackie dancing off third, running halfway home, and forcing the opposing pitcher into a balk. I see him throwing that Spalding to me, and I see my dad with a big smile on his face as Jackie's fastball exploded off my stick. Each and everybody can play. Yes, you know Jesus is standing at the home plate. And life is a ball game, and you can tell the impact these two men had on Herb London's life as if it was yesterday. And that's the thing about these kind of memories, sports, music, and that's why we dig into the arts, why we dig into sports. It's a fundamental fabric of American life, part of all of our stories. Thank you, Herb. And this is Our American Stories. stories and now it's time for our lewis and clark series the most epic road trip ever and we're following lewis and clark and their group of men called the Corps of discovery along their two and a half year adventure exploring the american west and here's our own alex cortez with our 10th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago we start with our friend Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical. We proceeded on and discussing the Corps of Discovery's president, Thomas Jefferson. For Jefferson, he has a bottle of water from the Mississippi at his table, or he has water from the Missouri, or he's always collecting exotic things that, that vindicate America's magnificence and then gathers these small dinner parties in the White House of 10 or 12 people, and then, I don't mean this negatively, but shows off, shows them these things, exhibits these things, and talks about 
the grandeur and the wonder and the uniqueness of America. And his core of discovery would give him something new to show off. Here's William Clark. September 7th, 1804. A very cold morning. Set out at daylight, discovered a village of small animals that burrow in the ground. Those animals are called by the French the prairie dog. And here's Sergeant Ordway's rather bewildered notes. They are a curious animal about the size of a little dog and of grayish color resembles them nearly except the tail which is like a squirrel. They'll stand on their hind feet and look. And with this encounter they became the first Americans to discover this thing called the prairie dog and to document it for science and let's be honest also for pleasure. Clay Jenkinson continues on Mr. Jefferson's delight. He doesn't say this, but of course it's true. I, Thomas Jefferson, sent this expedition out. Madison wouldn't have done it. Uh, Washington didn't do it. Adams certainly wouldn't have done it. I did it. And look what look what we have here. We have this incredibly intriguing and delightful little creature. They are a chubby, tawny creature, and they have inquisitive-looking faces uh, and whiskers, and they came all the way back from, uh, Mr. Lewis is said to be on the, uh, the far upper reaches of the Missouri River near uh, British North America, and the reports we have are that he's, he's doing well. One man died, but it was of natural causes. And he expects to reach the Pacific Ocean and come back successfully within a year. You can just almost hear Jefferson's sense of satisfaction in being able to show off in this way with this creature that Lewis and Clark got. But Lewis and Clark first had to somehow trap this prairie dog, keep it alive, and get it all the way from the west to Washington and inside President Jefferson's White House. How the heck did they do all of this? The village of those animals covers about four acres of ground and contains great numbers of holes on the top, of which those little animals set erect, make a whistling noise, and when alarmed, slip into their hole. The village of those little dogs is under the ground, a considerable distance. We attempted to dig to the beds of one of those animals. After digging six feet, found by running a pole down that we were not halfway to his lodges. These guys were not going to get to the prairie dogs by digging to them, especially given their sweet tunnel systems. It's wildly conducive to escape. They dig these extremely elaborate tunnel civilizations where they have birthing chambers and burial chambers and places where they store food and it's amazingly intricate underground world and what they did when they we realized they couldn't dig it out is they got barrels of water from the river and they would just bring those barrels to the hole and station men at nearby holes because they had figured out that they could there were several entrances and exits to each dwelling then decoy began to pour barrel after barrel of water down the hole and they assumed that eventually the prairie dogs will have no choice but to surface A so-called flooding of the little guys out. 
Not very empathetic of them for their victims, but can you also imagine being a strong military man like one of these guys in the expedition and standing by a small hole the size of a golf hole for hours just waiting for a little creature to pop out if it ever does. And if it does, you have to somehow wrangle this feisty little thing under control. And all this time you're waiting, you're also nervously wondering if you'll be the guy who has one pop out and immediately pop back in. And you, you utterly missing them. And they're going several more hours of your time and your dignity. They'll have men standing by with, I don't know what, burlap or bare hands. It would have been pretty dicey to catch one with your bare hands. They're quick and they're vicious. So I'm not sure quite how they caught them. Maybe they put something over the other hole, but it's almost impossible to flood out a a prairie dog. This took an enormous amount of time. In fact, Patrick Gass, almost surely out of frustration, made sure to note the quantity of time in his journal. But though they worked at the business till night, they only caught one. Oh boy. But at least they caught one of them. Before your narrator here got hitched, there were plenty of nights where not one woman would go out with me. Clay Jenkinson then got personal too, but perhaps not as vulnerable as I just did. I've done this, and everyone out here does this at some point or other. It tries to bring gophers out of the ground. It's it's a bigger world down there than you know, and they're a lot more clever than we are. And it seems kind of inherently cruel for us. For Lewis and Clark, this was a, an act of science. I hope you were drinking while you were doing this. You can only drink. <laughs> and then there was the whole other matter of somehow getting this live prairie dog to their president. It's just amazing to think that they built a cage. They had to build a cage out of wood, probably willow. Uh, and they kept that prairie dog alive through the winter. And then they stuck it on the keelboat and sent it all the way back down the entire Missouri-Mississippi River system and around Florida to Washington, D.C. Jefferson then showed off the prairie dog at his famous White House dinners for a few weeks. And when he had sort of gotten what he was going to get out of uh, those displays, he sent the creatures off to Philadelphia to Charles Wilson Peel, his friend, the museum curator. And they lived there until they died. So... The prairie dog made a journey of almost unbelievable extent to get all the way by the strangest possible route to the table of the Enlightenment president in Washington, D.C. And possibly the only cooler thing a president could show off might be astronauts you had sent to the moon. But then again, they are also fellow flawed human beings, while these are exotic unknowns who chirp, bark, and stand up on their hind legs. No astronaut does that. And great job, as always, by Alex Cortez. And again, that's the 10th feature in our The Most Epic Road Trip Ever series. Lewis and Clark's story 
here on Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. our American stories, and now we bring you the story of a Frenchman of, well, let's just say epic proportions, who had a major influence on the world of American entertainment. Here's Jesse. This is the story of a giant. If you're old enough to recognize the theme music here, you probably know exactly who we're talking about. The most famous giant in modern times, also known as the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant stood at seven feet, four inches tall, and weighed over 500 pounds. Now, his height is actually debated, but I'll go with the bigger numbers because he deserves it, and that's the numbers his own website quoted. He was undefeated in the world of pro wrestling from 1973 to 1987 and held the title of WWF World Heavyweight Champion of the World. Now, we all know that pro wrestling is just for fun, right? But trust me, you wouldn't want to get thrown across the ring or sat on by this guy. Live to my left, the one and the only Andre the Giant and Andre the wrestling fans indeed, the general public all over the entire world welcome the opportunity to see you in person. Thank you very much, and I really appreciate that. And you say I'm traveling all over the world, entire world, and I'm very happy traveling all over the world, and very happy to see all those people, all different people, and all different countries. A world-famous wrestler, Andre the Giant was also an actor in films like The Princess Bride. Beat it, or I'll call the Brute Squad. I'm on the Brute Squad. Born Andre Rasimov in France, his parents and four other siblings were all of pretty normal size. He suffered from a disease known as giantism, which gave him an overabundance of growth hormones, which made his body continue to grow through his entire life. He was six foot three and 208 pounds by the time he was 12 years old. Here's Andre's brother, Jacques, talking about growing up with Andre on the farm. My parents were very cool. We had a lot of freedom. Of course, we had to work a lot because at that time we didn't have a lot of money. So on Thursdays with my brother, we had to cut wood to heat the house. And that was a good way to pass the time. My brother really started to grow when he reached 16. Yeah, when he was 16. He was kind of a curiosity. Of course, everybody looked at him, they turned their heads as he passed. He was very strong, that's for sure. We had a flat tire in the back and we didn't have a jack, so I unscrewed all the lug nuts, except for one. Suddenly he lifted the car and I would take the spare tire and we wouldn't need a jack anymore. That's when we could tell he was strong. Being so big wasn't very easy for young Andre. In fact, he was too big to fit on the school bus by this age and his parents couldn't afford a car to get him to and from school. 
Luckily, Andre had a kind neighbor with a truck that would help him get back and forth to school. This kind neighbor just happened to be Nobel Prize winner and esteemed playwright Samuel Beckett. Andre dropped out of school after the 8th grade because he didn't really think he would need an education to work on his father's farm. Eventually, his sheer size and weight caught the eye of a local wrestling promoter who convinced him to move to Paris at the age of 17. He was taught professional wrestling back when guys actually wrestled without all the stage antics like we see in the world of pro wrestling today. But it wasn't easy. Nobody wanted to wrestle the giant. He didn't know his own strength and it was hard to find an opponent willing to take him on. But he gradually made a name for himself and he toured all over the world as a spectacle in the sport until he was hired by Vince McMahon Sr., founder of the World Wrestling Federation. Known at the time as the WWF, which went on to become WWE. Little disclaimer here, I don't watch this stuff anymore. I sure liked it when I was a kid. Andre the Giant was the best. He soon became an international celebrity and people would drive for miles just to see him in action. On March 26, 1973, Andre the Giant debuted as WWF fan favorite, defeating Buddy Wolf in New York's Madison Square Garden. Fast forward to 1987 and he was wrestling Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 3 in Pontiac, Michigan. There were 93,173 people in the crowd that night, the largest recorded attendance of a live indoor event in North America at the time, a record that would stand until 1999 when Pope John Paul II visited St. Louis. Here's Hulk Hogan. Andre is a superstar. He was the biggest and greatest superstar this business has ever known and ever will know. I mean, he was Andre the Giant. He's the one that laid the groundwork for Hulk Hogan, for Stone Cold Steve Austin, for The Rock, for anybody else that walks through those, these doors of the WWE Universe, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Andre the Giant. You know, and, and to know him as a superstar and the Giant, I remember when I was a fan, I used to watch him, and he would just put his hand on the top rope and lean over the top rope when he was in his prime, and I would just look at his hip and his leg hanging off the ring. It looked like a Clydesdale. You know, it was bigger than anything I'd ever seen, and never dreamed I'd be friends with him or ever get to meet him, but, you know, to fast forward to, you know, him being the greatest of all time, and as a person, what he went through, because if I would walk behind him in the airport, I would hear, oh my gosh, did you see that guy, or a lot of very unkind things were said, you know, and he could hear him, and, and for him to walk through and be as kind of a person as he was and as gentle of a person. Because if he would have been a mean person, there would have been none of us around. There would have been, talk about the guy that never got pinned, that would have been the guy. By most accounts, Andre was a jovial giant, content to play cards, socialize, and enjoy all the food and drink his success afforded him. During matches, he amused himself by stepping on an opponent's long hair or wringing out the sweat from his singlet into their face. In one bout, Jake the Snake Roberts recalled that Andre waited until Roberts was on the mat as he squatted down and unleashed his flatulence. According to Roberts, this went on for 30 seconds because giants fart for extremely long periods of time. Aside from wrestling, Andre the Giant landed several roles in the movies. Most notably, he played Fazik in The Princess Bride. Here's co-producer of that unforgettable film, Rob Reiner. Andre was a great guy, very smart, but Andre liked to drink. Andre liked a little drink. One day he comes to work and I said, Andre, uh, what did you do last night? And he says, uh, I went to the bar, had a couple of drinks. I said, well, what do you drink? He says, uh, three bottles of cognac, six bottles of wine. I said, 
Andre, do you get? You must have been drunk. He said, "No, I don't. I don't get drunk. A li little tipsy, but no." So now, the day we're supposed to shoot the ending of the movie, which we shot and didn't use because we have, you know, Peter Falk saying, "As you wish." We had the little boy after Peter Falk leaves. He leafs through the book and he starts, you know, reliving it. And then we had the four heroes on the four white horses. He looks out the window and he sees them and he waves to them. So we had these four white horses and we had Andre. We had to, you know, he's 500 pounds. So there's no horse that could support him. So we had to figure out a way to lift, you know, lower him from the ceiling on like cables. And uh, that day, the Nouveau Beaujolais came out. And he started drinking about 9 o'clock. He drank like, I'm not exaggerating, like 20 bottles of new Beaujolais. And I'm now at the end of a day. It's 8 o'clock at night. I'm walking to the end of Shepard and Studios. It's kind of a misty rain. And they open the, the, the doors of the stage. And there comes from the ceiling a 500-pound drunken giant. And he's waving at me. And he's going, hello, boss, like this. And I'm thinking... What do I do for a living? Andre the Giant's drinking habits were legendary. Reports say that he could drink anywhere from 100 to 200 beers in one sitting, and it wouldn't even give him a buzz. Wrestling promoter Arnold Scotland remembers one particular night at a bar with Andre the Giant. One night he was in a bar in uh, Montreal, and these guys come up and they were bothering him. You know, hey, you're not, you're big, but you're not strong. As if Andre said, look, I just come in here to drink. I don't want to, you know, no problems or anything. Well, these guys kept on, on him. They were, you know, feeling pretty good. Andre couldn't take it any longer. He finally got up, and he went for him. They ran out, and their car was parked on a, on a sidewalk right in front of the place. They jumped in the car and locked it, and Andre ran around to the side of the driver's side, trying to open the door. He couldn't, and uh, he got so mad, he reached down, he grabbed the car, and he turned it upside down on the sidewalk with the four guys in it. Now, Andre was able to leave the scene before police arrived to find an upturned car with four drunk hooligans inside. Imagine trying to explain to a cop that a giant had just tipped over their car. And this wasn't the only time. Andre would frequently move his friends' cars into positions that were impossible to get out of, like between two trees or sideways in their driveway. His hands were so large you could fit a silver dollar through one of his rings. Forget playing the piano or dialing a phone. The fingers you have used to dial are too fat. To obtain a special dialing wand, please mash the keypad with your palm now. Andre the Giant could easily walk into a restaurant and eat 12 steaks and 15 lobsters in one sitting. But being 7 foot tall with a fluctuating weight around 450 to 550 pounds, life was never easy. Tim White was Andre's friend and personal handler. You're just going to be in his shoes for a second to understand what he went through day in, day out. He couldn't hide from anybody. Wherever he went, he was public. People swarmed to him. Uh, when he got into a hotel room, the bed was too small. The shower came up to his waistline. His fingers were too big to dial the phone. I mean, the guy went through heck every day. And not once did he ever complain. Sometimes he wasn't private in his room because people would chase you up the elevator and find out what room and call your room all night. We've had it. We used to have to check out a hotel sometimes because it got to be too much. It was incredible to me the patience that he had. Sadly, over the years, the effects of his medical condition had continued to wear down his body. Eventually, his immense size was just too much for his heart, and Andre the Giant died in Paris in his hotel room on January 27, 1993. 
His body was flown back to the United States where his remains were cremated and scattered on his ranch in North Carolina. The ashes weighed 17 pounds. He was 46 years old when he died, and doctors told him he wouldn't live past 40. Though professionally, Andre will always be remembered as the eighth wonder of the world. He's known and loved by fans across the globe as the Gentle Giant. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Chick-fil-A I could eat there seven times a day Where the people laugh and children play Oh, I'm in love with Chick-fil-A This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for a hot talk, change the dial. If you're looking for fierce political debate, there's someplace else you'll find home. Here only stories, two hours a night. And joining us... For our On Leadership series is Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent at Chick-fil-A, thus the Tim Hawkins bit on Chick-fil-A. And uh, just a little setting on leadership is where we go back and, and talk to leaders from various parts of American life. We've done, well, folks who've passed, Jackie Robinson. We did an hour on Jackie Robinson with Pat Williams. Nobody's written better about uh, leadership than Pat Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Faye Vincent, who was a commissioner of Major League Baseball. We did a great hour with him. He was also the head of uh, Sony Pictures in Paramount. And uh, today, well, we wanted to learn a bit more about, well, what leadership means to someone at at Chick-fil-A headquarters. And I don't think there's a better corporate role model in the country than Chick-fil-A. And it's not just that we're addicted to the product, but we're addicted to the service and the servant heart of this great organization. I'd love to talk to you first uh, before we dig into the book which we're going to get to in the next couple of segments, but always we like to start off with a person's story. What, what got you into this line of work? What was your first job as a child? I actually go back to some entrepreneurial roots, Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I started out as a child, my first job is I opened a little candy store. We lived on the route to the swimming pool. And so everyone on, uh, during the summertime that was headed to the neighborhood swimming pool had to go right by our house. I had a friend in the grocery business so I went and bought uh, my products at wholesale prices and sold them at retail, made a little profit, and went back and restocked the store again, and that was my first job. Well, you know, and uh, we, we have a, a feeling here on this show, we talk about First Jobs Fridays, and we were talking to famous people, not famous people, because we're learning that the earlier people start work, the better. It's remarkable what happens. In fact, Mark Cuban had this amazing story about how his father, he wanted money for sneakers. And his father said, well, there's some black plastic bags here. There's some extras. Go sell them door to door. And so at 11 years old, he sold a bunch of black plastic bags door to door and bought a pair of sneakers. And as he said, learned everything about life he needed to know there, not at business school. So go figure. Let's talk about your father. Uh, tell us a bit about your dad and a little bit about your family. And also, where, where were you were born? Describe the, the neighborhood, the town where you were born. I was born in Atlanta, and I grew up, first of all, in Decatur, Georgia, which was a medium-sized town, and later we moved to, uh, we were moving to the suburbs out a little further to Stone Mountain, which has grown up a great deal, too. People know Stone Mountain, of course, from the famous mountain, 
um, one of the seven wonders of the world. And I uh, grew up in that neighborhood. My dad was an attorney, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and we had a very typical uh, two children, a dog, occasionally, a cat most often uh, over the years. And uh, my dad was my greatest uh, business mentor. Um, he, along with Truett Cathy, and uh, lost him in 2013. And part of my grief process was actually writing It's My Pleasure um, as I grieved the loss of my dad. And tell us about something specific about your dad. Uh, we love to ask people. We, had, uh, we did an hour on Bear Bryant. We were talking to some of his some of his boys, and they were men, but they were still remembering specific things Coach did for them that taught them about leadership. Something about your dad specifically that we could learn something about his father's listening right now. One of the things that dad, uh, I think my work ethic came from my dad. I don't ever remember my dad not going to work. Uh, he got up, went to work, worked long, worked hard, and I... Um, some of that was not as good, uh, but I learned so much about work ethic for him, from him. And the other interesting thing was around language. My dad was big on vocabulary. And what I learned, and he used to always say, profanity is the sign of a weak vocabulary. So we didn't have any <laughs> profanity in our house um, because otherwise we were seen as having a weak vocabulary. So he taught you, in a sense, a, a, a bit about work, a whole lot about work, and a whole lot about how to carry yourself. Absolutely. Uh, what about your, your mom? And then uh, after your mom, a key mentor in your life uh, who might have gotten you where you needed to be in your life? Uh, my mom was just the consummate. Um, she gave up her. She's a great stay-at-home mom. She gave up her career. Uh, she met my dad in law school, and she knew it wasn't going to work to have two lawyers in the family. Dad was quite competitive, <laughs> and uh, she figured out really quickly that was going to cause some problems. So uh, she decided to give up her career, and she um, she was the kind of mom that had a three-course meal on the table every night, and um, she ironed the sheets in our house. She was just um, tremendous in that way. My spiritual um, mentor was my mother. Um, she just taught me. Um, everything about faith and was that example in my life. And uh, for that, I'm extremely grateful. Um, my parents were my greatest mentors for, for different reasons. But beyond them, I'd have to say uh, my greatest mentor was Truett Cathy. And the reason um, being that is not only did I learn a lot of business principles, but what Truett taught, uh, and he said it all the time, we're not in the chicken business, we're in the people business. And so he um, taught me the whole principle that we could do almost anything but it's really though that job is just a means to impact lives, and that's what I learned from him. And tell us about uh, something unexpected. This is another question we ask guests before we dig into anything. Tell us an unexpected event in your life that helped shape your life, something you weren't prepared for. It came out of nowhere. Sometimes it can be an untimely death. I mean, we've had everything under the sun. Uh, something unexpected that happened in your life. Well, I think the most unexpected thing happened is that in 2007, after uh, when my husband asked me to marry him way back in 1983, I said I would. He was studying to be a pastor, and I said, but under the condition that I'm not going on the mission field. And I didn't believe for one minute that I ever wanted to spend time in a foreign country. And um, in 2007, I found myself, the first mission trip I take is in, in a village two and a half hours outside of Nairobi, Kenya. And um, what I learned there um, shaped my life forever. And um, because I saw um, I saw people who had absolutely nothing that had this incredible joy. And uh, it changed my life. Well, that's great. Uh, we're talking to Deanne Tuner, Vice President of Corporate Talent. 
at Chick-fil-A on Leadership Series, and we love to talk to everybody. And again, we even spoke through the dead. Jackie Robinson, go on our website, ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to that Jackie Robinson piece with Pat Williams. More with Deanne after this message. Fast food, I know just what he'd eat. Not Taco Bell, the Pizza Hut, or even Mickey D's. Cause clowns have always scared him. Just trust me, I can tell. But there's something about that upright cow who needs to learn to spell. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're talking to Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent at Chick-fil-A. By the way, I love that title. Because human resources, and I'm not saying this is the human resource department, but I've always believed that there are two types of capital in the world. There's capital capital, and that's money. And then there's the human capital. And that you're seeing your people as talent. Is a, it's a beautiful thing, and I, I just had to, to recognize that, and I hope more companies emulate that. Treat your people like talent. They'll actually act like talent. And we're now going to dive into It's My Pleasure, the Impact of Extraordinary Talent in a Compelling Culture. Uh, and this is, of course, Deanne's book. And how did this book come to be, Deanne? <laughs> I mentioned earlier about my dad and that he passed away in August of 2013. And about that same time, Truett, uh, who had been a huge mentor in my life and I had worked for for almost 30 years at that point, he became ill and was not in the business um, at that point. And so that was uh, I was really grieving both of those things in my life. Uh, my whole life was changing. My boys were going off to college and law school and uh, just so many changes were happening. And, and honestly, I heard a sermon from Andy Stanley. And the question that was asked in that sermon is, God, what would you have me to do in these circumstances? So I began praying this prayer for six months. And the other thing I said to God is, if you say so, I will. So if you, you bring somebody in front of me that I need to meet or you have a place for me to go, I'll go do those things so that I can find what it is you would have me to do in these circumstances. Also during that time, my then 14-year-old son kept saying, Mom, when are you going to write that book you always talked about? When are you going to write that book? I'd always wanted to be a writer since the time I was eight years old. And uh, I finally got a little exasperated with Trey, and I said, Son, when God writes it in the sky, I'll write the book. The other thing that happened during that time is I, I told my assistant that I'd like to go to Boise, Idaho. And she said, Why Boise? And I said, Well, it's a market I've never been to. Chick-fil-A has some new restaurants there. I'd like to take one of my mentees in 2015 and go there. And uh, she knows me too well. She kind of blew me off a little bit, and she said, Delta doesn't even fly there direct. Um, <laughs> so in June of 2014, after I'd prayed that prayer for six months, I got an email. And the email said, I don't know if you remember me, but I interviewed you a few years ago for a magazine article, and I was wondering if you had a book in you you'd like to publish. And I looked up in the sky, and I said, you didn't write it in the sky, but you sent it in the sky. <laughs> and so since I said, if you say so, I will, I picked up the phone, and I called the guy. 
And uh, we started talking. I was very skeptical about it. And I said, why me? And he said, well, you're you're a woman, a businesswoman with a, a faith edge to you. And that's kind of uncommon. I think that would be an interesting niche. And so I, I said, okay. And he said, and there's one more thing. I said, what's that? He said, God's imprinted your name on my heart for the last six months. Wow. So we started... Uh, we continued our discussion. I said, well, sounds like we should meet. I said, are you ever in Atlanta? He said, I have some clients there, but I don't have any plans to be there anytime soon. I said, well, I better come see you. Where are you located? Well, of course, he of was course. located in Boise, Idaho. Of course. Of <laughs> and course. so that was the start of how it all came about. And uh, over the course of about the next six months, I wrote, it's my pleasure. And let's talk about purpose. Uh, you, you have a premise here that a company has to know its purpose. And by the way, I believe this about a family. I believe this about a country. I believe this about almost everything. And I love asking people, what's your purpose? I love asking young people what their purpose is. Uh, talk about this. And how, how did uh, your boss and your mentor manage this purpose-driven culture that is Chick-fil-A? What's interesting about Chick-fil-A's well-known corporate purpose, it didn't come about until 1983, and Chick-fil-A had been incorporated since 1964. And what happened was that uh, we'd moved into a brand-new corporate campus, and Chick-fil-A was both in debt from this brand new building that we had, and we had the first sales slump ever, and Truett was concerned. And so he took his executive committee off to a retreat, and what's interesting is they didn't do what most corporations do. They didn't come up with a new sales contest for Chick-fil-A operators. Um, they didn't come up with a cost reduction plan. They didn't come up with a reduction in force. They came up with the purpose of why we were in business at all. And that was to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to be a positive influence with all who come in contact and with all with whom we all come in contact. And um, so from that, um, they came back and they shared that purpose. And the Chick-fil-A staff that year actually carved it into stone and put it in the front door so that everyone who came by would see why we were there at all. So the results were pretty outstanding. Chick-fil-A's had a sales increase every year since. In 2012, we became debt-free. We enjoy a retention rate of Chick-fil-A operators of about 95% and of Chick-fil-A staff members about 96%. And so knowing what you're doing and being about something that's bigger than yourself has really proved to be the center of our culture. Well, and by the way, that's a unique thing that happened at that retreat because I've been on those retreats with companies and I've watched panic ensue. And in the end, cost-cutting, and in the end, the stripping away of whatever culture was left. So there had to be something distinct about your boss and mentor that even put him there. Has he ever spoken about where that, where that strength came from to go in that direction? Where, where did that come from? Because that's so counterintuitive for what most business people would face, because that's a crisis. And most people react very poorly when a crisis hits. That was part of the strength of Truett's character. He had been through a lot. He was, he grew up in the depression. Many people don't know this, but his family lived in the first housing project in Atlanta. Uh, his mother ran a boarding house and, and he jokes about the reason he served chicken breast is because he never, he, the guest always got those and he never got it. So Truett was accustomed to surviving and to getting through crisis. And so I think the strength of his leadership and his personal character and purpose were the role model to create an environment where a purpose like that could, could be articulated for the organization. By the way, I was lucky enough to see him talk to a bunch of business students, and he was talking about his, his business and the culture. And at a certain point during question and answer, a young, precocious business student said, 
You're closed on Sundays. That's got to cost you a lot of money. There's opportunity costs. There's this, there's that, the competitors. And what do you say to that? And if you were to ever go public, how would that affect the value of your company? He said, well, first, he said, and, this, and, and his, you, you know how he speaks, but he said, be, well, yeah. first of all, we have no intention of ever going public. He says, but second, we, never, we don't lose a, a plug nickel uh, on, on Sunday's enclosures. But talk about that philosophy, because that is a day of revenue. That's a day of revenue. And no other major food company with the margins that food companies work on, and we'll talk about that in a bit, how do you how do you have the wherewithal and the fortitude with all of that overhead to say one day a week, ah, we're shutting the doors, and it's a Sunday? You know, when Truett first closed his original Dwarf House restaurant when he, that he opened in 1946, when he closed on Sunday, I'm not sure exactly when he decided it would be closed on Sunday, but people have joked that he decided on Saturday night because he was tired. <laughs> and he had worked, his restaurant had been open 24 hours a day for the previous six days. And it was then that Truett said he decided that a person should, um, if they can't make a living in six days, they might should do something else. And so it was, at first it was a very practical matter for Truett to be closed on Sundays. He realized that his employees needed rest and that he needed rest. Now, that wasn't such a sacrifice in 1946 because most businesses were closed on Sunday. That's right. Where it became a a sacrifice was when he started opening Chick-fil-A restaurants and malls after 1967. And he told the landlords he wouldn't open on Sunday. And he missed some prime opportunities at that time to go into certain malls because he wouldn't open on Sunday. But he didn't waver from his principle of being closed. And um, he can, and then eventually, what the landlords learned is that Chick Fil A could uh, do as many sales in six days as the others could do in seven, and it became a non-issue. And actually, what I heard Truett say a lot about uh, when he was asked, Truett, did you ever calculate how much sales you lost by being closed on Sunday? He said, no, I was far more concerned of how much I would have lost if I were open. <laughs> That's a great answer. And by the way, there was someone in that class who was such a Chick-fil-A fan that said, well, if you know, you've already planned accordingly and you're eating there on Monday <laughs> or Saturday. So in the end, there was no loss volume sale for those folks who go to business school and know what that means. There was no loss. He was dead right. He always said the chicken tastes sweeter on Monday when you couldn't have it on Sunday. <laughs> and indeed. This is Lee Habib, and the, dick, the chicken does taste sweeter on Monday. As someone who periodically drives up to a Chick-fil-A on Sunday, just out of force of habit, and it's closed, I'm always there on Monday. And we're talking to Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent at Chick-fil-A. And what I want you to do, if you get a chance, is go to our website, and that's ouramericannetwork.org, and go through and plow through some of our other leadership discussions. It's a very important issue for us, and when we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about this thing called culture. It's the C word, and it matters in businesses, it matters in homes, and there's a culture, you can feel it, you can touch it when you walk into a Chick-fil-A. I won't name the competitors, but when you walk into the competitors' places, they're, they're just not looking you in the eye, you're not getting greeted the same, no one's coming to top off your drink when you're sitting down. Never happens. And every time I go to Chick-fil-A, would you like a refill at a fast food restaurant? No less. And I'm not sure you want me to use that term, but I think that that's who your competitors are. <laughs> and uh, when we come back, more with Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
If you lined up all the restaurants Where I've eaten all my life Give me five bucks and some napkins A plastic fork, a plastic knife Then you gave me the choice To pick where I'd eat today That's a real easy decision One that's not too tough to make I would proudly go for some waffle fries And a jumbo size sweet tea And I won't forget the chickens who died Who gave their life for me So I grab this sandwich Take a bite Put it back down on the tray Yeah, there ain't no doubt I love this place God bless you, Chick-fil-A This is Lee Habib And we're laughing because it's true I almost sometimes call it, and I hate using the C word, this C word, the cult of Chick-fil-A, but the, the fandom that is developed from, from Chick-fil-A, the fans, and we love talking to people who create fans and not customers. And uh, Vernon Hill, one of the great bankers in this country, had come up with that book, uh, Creating Fans, Not Customers. And I'm in the fan business, having done a lot of national radio shows. Uh, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent at the aforementioned Chick-fil-A. And by the way, before we go on with the book, my little girl has a question. What happened to the fudge brownies with the, with the nuts in them? Because she, 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 she desperately wants to know. Oh, well, guests told us they like chocolate chip cookies better. So we have our great chocolate chunk cookie. I hope she'll fall in love with it. Oh, no, she loves it. Don't get me wrong. And I've told her, look, the market decides, sweetie. The market decides. And uh, the market has spoken. Let's dig into the the book. And again, it's, uh, it's my pleasure, the impact of extraordinary talent and a compelling culture. And hiring uh, for all the folks there who have a business or for all the folks out here who are employees. Talk to us, and are, by the way, possibly looking for a new job. Talk to us about how you look at the hiring person. Who, who are you looking for? What are you looking for in a hire? Well, first of all, we don't talk about hiring people. We talk about selecting them because we talk about selecting talent versus hiring people. Hiring people is like getting warm bodies to do a job. But when you select talent, you look for just the right skill set for the need that you have. And the way we go about doing that, the first thing we're looking for is people who have a heart for service. Like Truett said, we're in the people business, and what we do is serve people. So we look for people who really have a heart for that. And the way we go about that is we we do what we call the three C's, which is we look at character, competency, and chemistry. And um, through that, we start with character. Our core values are excellence, generosity, loyalty, and integrity. So we look for people who exemplify that in their lives, and and the role model for those values was Truett. And then secondly, we look at competency, you know, the skill set that it takes to do whatever role we have, whether that's at the support center in Atlanta or that's a franchisee, that they, they have the necessary skills for the role. And then lastly, we look at chemistry. Is this a good fit? Uh, is this person uh, as committed to our organization as we are to them? Because we realize that 50% of the decision is the person we're selecting, not just uh, our decision. So we make sure that they really understand what they're getting into. And uh, in fact, we uh, we are proud of the fact that we actually try to talk people out of the job. Well, you know, we uh, we do a regular weekly segment with Deb Bolniak, and she runs Great Marriages for Sheboygan. And she has done a remarkable thing there, driving down divorce rates in this county. I mean, it's extraordinary. And part of what she does in the early counseling is, is precisely that. A, maybe these folks don't need to get married. 
And then when they do, it's, are we selecting the right mates? And they have bodies all over these young couples. And then they have, they've assigned mentors to these couples for the rest of their lives. By the way, it makes complete sense, and more churches and more organizations should do this. But it sounds like that's what you're thinking about in this selection process. What, how does the team work? Who makes these decisions? Is it a team-based decision? Is it the, the head of that particular uh, uh, store? How does this decision-making itself happen? At the restaurant level, that's the responsibility of the individual franchisee. So for some franchisees, they make those decisions themselves. Most all of them use a team to make decisions. So somebody will go through a process. Uh, at the support center in Atlanta, when we select a corporate staff member or franchisee, that's a team um, that does that. And do you know, up until late in his career, Truett Cathy interviewed, did the final interview of every single corporate staff member and every single franchisee. And later, our President Jimmy Collins um, did the same up until his retirement in 2001. Is there a question or two that you would advise people asking in this talent recruitment business that reveals the most about a person that one wouldn't normally associate with a traditional interview? One of the things I like to ask, there were uh, there were a couple of things, but the one thing that I, I used to like to ask is, um, what would, um, I would ask them what their former employers would say, and what would they say about you? What would they say is, um, what that you need to grow and develop in the most? And so rather than asking the candidate, what, what do you need to grow in and develop the most in? I would ask what other people would say about them. And then I think, um, you know, another unique thing that we do is, um, we look for people, we look for opportunities to find out people's reputation with whom they've been accountable to beyond just the workplace. So if they've been a volunteer coach in an athletic association, we want to talk to those references and learn about them from that perspective. If they've volunteered in the community, the local hospital, wherever it's been, they've been accountable to someone. We want to get that input, not just past employers input. And that gives us a well-rounded view of people. You know, Arthur Laffley, who is, I think, considered one of the great uh, CEOs in America, uh, did a, uh, a long piece for the Harvard Business Review. And he was asked what he looked for in hires. And he, he, he focused a lot on extracurricular activities and what people were doing with their heart, not with their grades. Mm-hmm. And he said, I would rather have somebody who is the captain of the Glee Club, uh, the head of fundraising for Girl Scout cookies, and had a B minus rather than the A plus student who had no heart for customers and no heart for service. Uh, are, there, are there ways that you look at some of that, are those evaluations too? Uh, this is, I think, such an important decision that we all make, um, which talent we have around us, um, because making the wrong choices can really affect your culture. What other things do you do to make sure that you're getting the right people and the consequences of getting wrong people? When you get wrong people in your culture, what do you do about that? What, what happens when you've gotten the interview process wrong? It pretty much reveals itself in a month or two that this is the wrong place, that it's a cultural mismatch. What do you do about those two things? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned about what do you do when you make a mistake. And, and one of the reasons we invest so much on the front end is because we don't want that expense and time and and really disappointment that everyone has when things don't work out and so fortunately we don't have that happen very often that we have to deal with the back end um, issues but um, when that takes place you know Truett was famous for um, if there was a performance issue now issues of character are one thing you know you don't let people do things that harm the reputation of the organization but if it were performance issues um, Truett would ask you what you'd done to try to help the person and then he'd send you back and say try harder 
um, that you gave every opportunity because both of you invested so much on the front end to enter into this relationship. You bet. He wanted to make sure that you didn't get out of it lightly, but you really worked to uh, try to make it successful. And I can't tell you, but over and over again, when the effort was placed, I saw such success in that. It really happened that way. Well, and that shows his heart for people, too, because too often in life we want to just, quote, cut our losses. And sometimes the problem is the leadership and not the worker itself. This is Lee Habib. On Leadership is the segment, and we do this once a week. Deanne Turner, Vice President of Corporate Talent, is joining us. And her book, It's My Pleasure, The Impact of Extraordinary Talent and a Compelling Culture. More after this. not exactly a fancy recording in a recording studio but it is uh dan kathy and his merry band of music makers at the opening of a store in south carolina celebrating well as they should that's uh, a remarkable business story it's a remarkable american story and joining us on our leadership segment in our never-ending series on leadership weekly is deanne turner vice president of corporate talent at chick-fil-a and she's here to plug her new book, It's My Pleasure, The Impact of Extraordinary Talent and a Compelling Culture. And we were just talking about hiring talent, and we were actually selecting it, as we learned from, uh, from, from the Chick-fil-A folks who deeply believe that in the end, there's a match that has to happen here, and there has to be a real cultural fit. Talk about the maintenance of that culture now. How do you keep it going? You've hired the person, you've selected the person, you've recruited the person. How do you keep them? This is a critical role of leadership um, to maintain that culture. And so we try to do a lot of things. We focus on, um, for instance, uh, I love the idea of commitment versus compliance. You know, compliant employees, that's very transactional. They just do what you ask them to do for a paycheck. But when you have commitment for people, they give you their discretionary effort. They go over and beyond to serve guests and to serve their fellow employees. And so um, we focus on how do we develop that commitment? Well, we do it. Um, a lot of that is just the actual, whether it's at the restaurant level, it's the leadership there, or if it's at our support center, um, it's it has to do about caring about your employees. You know, people don't leave 
businesses. They leave people. And they stay or go depending on their relationship with their immediate supervisor. And so one of the ways we maintain culture is to support those who are leading others and uh, helping them uh, be able to perform that role, um, whether it's giving great feedback, um, the ability to actually counsel an employee about those things, or whether it's um, fostering dreams that employees have about um, things that they'd like to accomplish. Yeah, you know, one of my heroes is, uh, and you know him from Atlanta, is Bernie Marcus, and I got to watch him at a at a store opening in Paramus, New Jersey, and I just saw a great company leader because I watched him with the employees, and he was there for about a week, and I just kept going back. And one day, I just, you know, I, I'm a kid, I'm a journalist, and I started asking him questions, and I said, how do you, how, he used the word hire, not select, and he goes, oh, well, that's easy. If I'm at a store and somebody goes above and beyond the call of duty, wherever I am, I hand him a card, I'm the CEO, and I tell him, how are they treating you here, and how are they paying you? Call me. And they would call him directly. <laughs> and, and so the idea of finding the right people, I think, is something that goes deeply into creating that culture, maintaining the people. Uh, my goodness, you're, that, that sounds like that's a real commitment. How much of your resources would you say you spend selecting versus maintaining? Well, true, it always felt like if you selected the right person, it solved a lot of the problems. So um, we definitely invest heavily in that whole selection process. Um, I, I think the biggest discrepancy is we don't have to invest a lot on the back end. We don't lose a lot of people with a high retention rate of 95 percent. Um, that's where we uh, we don't have to invest as much. And so we I would say we equally um, support both the selection and the maintenance of that culture. That's great. And what you're, the, something we get over and over again is the difference between a calling and a job. Mm. Um, let's talk about the differentiation between those two. Yes, you know, I, I go back to my own story, and uh, I went to when I went to college. I really felt like I, I went as a journalism major and thought I was going to end up in full time ministry, and met my husband who was a pastor, and and I envisioned us doing that um, later. I w- I went to work for Chick Fil A, and he left the full time ministry, and so there was a time in my life that I thought, oh, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not fulfilling my calling of being in full time ministry, and then I realized I was doing that because. My calling was to help other people find theirs. And when people work out of their true calling versus just a job they have, they actually impact lives. And so when I think about a job, that's just something that gets printed on a resume. Um, but a calling is something that you have for all of your life. It's what you were made to do versus what gives you a paycheck. No doubt. And I think that gets back to that commitment versus compliance in the end. You know, it's interesting. Justice Scalia was just, uh, was, we just learned that this great jurist had passed along and we, we did an hour on him last night and it was interesting his favorite quote came from a Yale law professor and this was it and imagine he's a lawyer one of the great lawyers of all time and he said this and he was a really committed catholic he said in heaven there are no laws the lion will lay with the lamb mm-hmm. in hell there are only laws and i think that that revealed a lot to him about his philosophy about America, that there had been too many rules. He was trying to get back to a simplified constitution, let the people make decisions without all of these laws. Because what you get there is compliance, Mm -hmm. but you don't get commitment. And that was what Truett was great about. I I was actually speaking to a group earlier, and I was telling him when he started out, he used to tell his franchisees there were three rules. Don't open on Sunday. Don't change the menu and put the money in the bank. And, uh, and he was, and, and that's how the phrase, it's my pleasure came about. It was one of Truett's few edicts. And, uh, he actually made that an edict to the chain asking, um, 
our team members not only to to greet guests in that way when they said thank you to say it's my pleasure, but also to fulfill it. It's my pleasure kind of service. Now, given that this is a part of your business advantage, look, you're not about to give away the formula to that fried chicken. There's no way you're giving that up mm-hmm. any more than Coca-Cola would give up their formula to anybody. But yet, in some respects, you're giving up a piece of the formula of your business success because what you're sharing here are business practices in the end. Why are you sharing these with all of your competitors? It is a great question. You know, I don't think it's any secret. I mean, all you have to do is walk into a Chick-fil-A restaurant and spend enough time observing to see what it is that we're doing that's making us successful. There's nothing, um, I mean, you can see how people are trained. You can see what's happening there. But this is why I think this is important. And Truett had this abundancy mentality as well. When we um, all together in the marketplace, when we help everyone get better, get to get better, the marketplace gets better. And I think that's good for our economy. And so um, the fact that we share secrets of how to treat people better, how to treat employees better, how to treat guests better. If everyone did that, we'd all be better off. Well, and there's no doubt, and this, I think, is what made, whether he'd like me to say it or not, a capitalist, because ca- capitalists believe in abundance. By the way, Christians believe in abundance. Um, it's, the, it, it's others who believe that the pie just stays at a certain size, and then we're, we're all carving it up. And that, that, that limits resources, limits our ideas and options in life. What's given you the deepest sense of fulfillment in your life? The deepest sense of fulfillment that I have found is you were just talking about that whole idea of calling and it's helping other people find what they were made to do and um, what the calling on their life is and seeing them be successful at that. There's nothing that excites me more in my job than to see somebody earn a promotion. I'm like a kid at Christmas. I can't go. I can't go to sleep the night before knowing I'm going to get to talk to somebody about the new opportunity that they have. And so, um, in the business world, that's certainly been it. And in my personal life, it's seeing my children achieve the same. That's great. And you know, there's a there's a very famous Gore Vidal quote, which is the opposite of that spirit. He said, "When a friend of mine succeeds, a little part of me dies." Mm-hmm. And I pity the guy who has that kind of idea. And if we're going to have the right leaders, they've got to really be rooting for their people Absolutely. and be genuinely happy happy when good things happen. Uh, tell us something about yourself that none of us would expect. <laughs> I can quote the Superman call backwards. Oh, no, please do. You know it forwards. Look, it's a bird. It's playing. No, it's Superman up, up and away. Well, backwards, that's cool. Stia drib, stia enap on stia narapus, poo, 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 Donna Yahweh. <laughs> that's really good. That's the best one yet. That's our best one. <laughs> that gets a high five from Lance. <laughs> so was there a, was there, <laughs> could you do that one more time? Absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> cool. Stia drib, stia enap on stia narapus, poo, 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 Donna Yahweh. Same exact way. That was not. That is the real thing. Or as we say in New Jersey, that wasn't a fugazi. So tell us about uh, a teacher in your life who had a profound impact. I think so many teachers in our culture get no recognition. Uh, tell us about a teacher in your life. Oh, that's easy. That's Janice Bright. She was my ninth and twelfth grade English teacher. When I was in the ninth grade, uh, she encouraged me greatly. She challenged me. She pushed me. And then in my ninth grade yearbook, she wrote these words: "I'd like an autographed copy of your first book." And so on November the 18th, it was my privilege to have Mrs. Bright, who's long since retired, come to a Chick-fil-A restaurant where I treated her to dinner and presented her with her signed copy of It's My Pleasure. Wow, that is wonderful. You know, we learned from uh, uh, a story about Vince Lombardi that one of his boys, who is now a man, was telling us a story about how Coach told him that he was going to be a Hall of Fame guard one day if he would just believe it himself. 
And it was, it was 35 years later, him talking about Coach Lombardi. And he remembered that day. And he said, from that day on, the, ter- the wheels started spinning in his head about how to prepare, mm-hmm. how to think, and even how to take the criticism from his coach, which periodically came from Coach Lombardi. He wasn't necessarily the easiest guy to work with. <laughs> Very quick answer here, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, if you had a choice. Stones. The Stones. A sto- my, my wife is with you. I'm a Beatles person. She's a Stones person. And she sometimes doesn't forgive me for that. This is Lee Habib. And, well, we've been talking to Deanne Turner. And we've been talking about life. We've been talking about work. And a final thought, 30 seconds, Deanne, uh, about anybody running a business, anybody trying to run a, uh, an organization, a single insight uh, before we leave. 30 seconds. I think the most important thing that we can do if we're going to invest our time in being in business or in running a business is to think about the impact we have on other people. Uh, we have incredible opportunity to give people opportunities or to take in, uh, or to take their opportunities away. And so if we're going to bother to invest in a business or spend time working, we might as well do it for some bigger good than ourselves. That's a beautiful closing thought. The impact we can have on other people, on leadership, Deanne Turner, it's my pleasure. The impact of extraordinary talent on a compelling culture. All about that great culture we know as Chick-fil-A. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear this and all that we do.